Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a community dedicated to helping women connect, learn and lead. One of the most exciting ways we do this is at our annual Future Women Leadership Summit. This year's summit was equally thought-provoking and inspirational, offering plenty of practical take-home advice to accelerate your career. If you couldn't make it, don't worry. I'm bringing you the next best thing to being in the room and sharing the highlights from this year's event. The theme of Future Women's Leadership Summit 2023 was Accelerate. And while the conference provided practical advice on how to accelerate our individual careers, it also emphasised that progress can only be achieved together. In this episode, you'll hear from two speakers who discuss the significance of collective change as we work towards a fairer and more inclusive society for everyone. Karen Mundine, CEO of Reconciliation Australia, has over 25 years' experience leading community engagement, public advocacy, communications and social marketing campaigns. Throughout her career, she's played a key role in significant national events, such as the Apology to the Stolen Generations, Centenary of Federation Commemorations, Corroboree 2000 and the 1997 and 2021 Australian Reconciliation Conventions. Karen is also a member of the Australian Government's Referendum Engagement Group. In this discussion, she reflects on the struggles of her ancestors as they fought for a better future and emphasises the significance of the Uluru Statement from the Heart as a pivotal opportunity for all Australians to come together and create a brighter future. She also offers advice on how we as individuals can actively contribute to this historic moment. This is a momentous time to be talking about how to accelerate our future. We're on the cusp of a once in a generational change, a chance to change the course of our nation forever. To reset our relationship with First Nations peoples in this country and to accelerate justice and equity. Now historians will tell you that epic transformation can take centuries to achieve. Most take a lifetime, sometimes a few. But this one is happening right now on our watch. Now, you might have heard the Prime Minister and others talking about an upcoming referendum. Later this year, we're all going to be asked to answer a very simple question. Should we recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Australian Constitution through a voice? A voice or a representative body that gives advice to government about laws that specifically affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Why? Because we know when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are at the heart of our decision making about the issues that affect our lives, we see better outcomes. We have the solutions. But as a nation, we need to create an opportunity for our solutions to be heard and to be implemented. Elevating our voice, including the voices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, accelerates change for all of us, particularly those who are underrepresented. Because we know when there are more diverse voices being heard in our halls of parliament and the halls of power, that it benefits all Australians. Giving us a voice creates practical and lasting change for all of us. But to get there, we need to recast the foundations of our nation. 
So this is all about the Australian Constitution, or as Professor Megan Davis has called it, Australia's big law. Our Constitution is the document that sets out the basic architecture for governance in Australia. It determines what the Commonwealth and state governments can do, and it sets up our legal systems. It's the rule book for our nation. But it was drafted more than 122 years ago by, and no disrespect to anyone, a bunch of white men, and they finalised it on a paddle steamer boat just north of here. Now, like the paddle steamer, the drafting of the Constitution was a pretty advanced process for its time. But it left out one important thing. In setting up a new nation, it failed to acknowledge the existing First Nations of this country. It ignored the people whose connection to this place goes back millennia and who, for tens of thousands of years, have cared for country and governed on country. The Constitution failed to acknowledge the first Australians, and the only mention of Aboriginal people in the Constitution was to exclude us. So fast forward to the 1960s and a group of strong Aboriginal women, they led the campaign to end our exclusion and to change the Constitution so that the Commonwealth could make laws for Aboriginal people and that we'd be counted in the census. Now, my mum and aunties, they were all in their late teens and 20s at the time, and they got involved with the Yes campaign, part of the movement, handing out flyers, organising dances to fundraise. The 1967 referendum was a positive step, but it's not the end of the story. There's still more work to do. As articulated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the 1967, we were counted. Now we seek to be heard. The Uluru Statement from the Heart is an invitation to all Australian people to walk with us, to build a better future. It was endorsed by the 250 First Nations delegates to the Uluru Convention, following meetings that were held all around the country, and it's supported by First Nations communities, organisations and people right across the country. Now, the Constitution can only be changed by the Australian people, and I have great confidence in all of us. Across the last couple of years, we've witnessed a changing mood in how we come together to reflect, to respect and celebrate what it means to be Australian. Research from our latest reconciliation barometer tells us that 93% of us believe it's important for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have a say in matters that affect us. 80% of all Australians believe it's important to create a national Indigenous representative body. And 79% believe it should be protected under the Constitution. It makes sense. It's practical and it's simple. But for the people most affected by the change, First Nations peoples, it will make a world of difference. Now, women were at the forefront of the 1967 referendum campaign, and they're here now too. Proud Aboriginal leaders who've been working for decades to bring this to this point. So how can you help? Well, this story is as much your story as it is mine. This is an opportunity to bring our country together. And you can seize this opportunity today with three simple actions. Inform yourself, be part of the conversation, and get active. And if you want some more ideas, Yes23 and Together Yes websites have a lot more. 
We need people like you, people with heart, people who want to see a change, people like my mum and aunties handing out flyers and talking to anyone who will listen. The movement needs each and every one of us to use our power, to use our words, our votes to say yes, to create a better, more just Australia. So in conclusion, First Nations people, we've governed and stewarded this country for millennia. We were here when the first fleet sailed into Kamei or Botany Bay back in 1788. We were here during the frontier killings. We were here when the paddle steamer Lucinda chugged into the basin at Pitwater on Garingai country. And we were still here in 1901 when the Australian constitution first came into effect. We were here during state mandated policies of racial segregation and assimilation. And we are still here now. But now it's time for us to be recognised and it's time for our voice to be heard. Thank you. Next, you'll hear from Helen Connolly, South Australia's inaugural Commissioner for Children and Young People. In her role, Helen advocates at a systemic level for the rights and interests of children and young people, directly engaging with them to seek their views, with a special focus on children who aren't usually heard. In this discussion, Helen shares the insights she's gained from these interactions and what we can do now to shape the leaders of the future. As South Australia's inaugural Commissioner for Children and Young People, my mandate is to promote the rights, best interests and well-being of South Australian children and young people. I advocate for the views, aspirations and rights of young children and young people to be affirmed, promoted and protected, working to give children a voice across our society. Children and young people are the experts in their own lives and they want to have their opinions heard, taken seriously and acted upon. In fact, it is their right. My approach in my work is to seek children and young people's perspective on policy, process and practice, to amplify, amplify their views and voices, to represent them in the public arena and to deliver on the things that children and young people have asked me to deliver on, deliver on and to be accountable to them. Over the past few years, I've had face-to-face -face conversations and held focus groups with thousands, tens of thousands of South Australian children and young people. They come from diverse backgrounds, live in a variety of places and spaces, and have shared their views on a range of issues and topics. I've heard firsthand how many children and young people in South Australia lead happy, active lives and feel respected by the adults with whom they interact. They value their family relationships, including those they have with their family pets. They value their friendships, their education, their learning, their culture, as well as opportunities to participate in their local communities. I've discussed sensitive topics such as bullying, poverty, school exclusions, mental health, sex, menstruation, and I've heard from children and young people about the impacts of unstable housing, homelessness and having no money has on, care, has on them. I've heard from children who are caring for their parents who have health challenges and have coming from refugee and migrant backgrounds. However, 
It is the impact of sexism, gender roles and gender stereotype has on the lives of children and young people that has really surprised me. While it's clear that the impacts are different for boys and girls, it still affects almost every aspect of a child or young person's aspirations, relationships and well-being. As a generation that demands more respect for diversity, young people want an education that uses a more gender-sensitive approach. They want to be part of a generation who advances gender equity by working with teachers and educators to address and positively transform gender equality in their schools. Children and young people have also expressed their frustration and concern that discussion and instruction about sexism, sexual assault and domestic violence are not currently a feature of their relationships and sexual health education. This leaves them feeling unsafe at school, at work and socially, as well as within their intimate relationships. We have so much further to go to address behaviours that enable girls in grades seven and eight to be catcalled in the playground by older boys, coerced into sending nudes of themselves, or bullied in ways that sexualise and degrade them. Not to mention the behaviours that put pressure on young men to repress their emotions so they don't risk being seen as weak or feminine. These are real things. This is what kids talk to me about every day. So we are a long way off having gender equality. My aim is to increase the broad understanding we all have of the impacts that sexism, harassment and gender stereotype has on children and young people. And in doing so, create a dialogue with decision makers that can support improvements in the way schools in particular address sexism and stereotyping. Now, it'd be far too simplistic to suggest that schools alone can change this deep gender inequality and equity that exists in our society. However, it's also remiss to not address the issues identified by children and young people themselves um, and the role they say school has in promoting and reinforcing sexist ideals, attitudes and behaviour. Gendered thinking can influence what children and young people find important in a future career path and therefore shape their educational choices from a young age, including what subjects they pursue and how they evaluate their competency in certain subjects. While gendered thinking has been shown to positively shape boys' future career paths and subject preferences, for girls it also shapes their own competency beliefs. Girls are often taught to question their own ability and confidence where boys are taught to be confident and more self-belief even in an education context. So to finish, I did take the the topic uh, seriously, so future women, so that's why the focus is very much on girls, but my vision is a future where children and young people's aspirations, relationships and wellbeing are not limited or determined by gender stereotyping and that school is a place that intentionally calls out sexism and promotes equality and inclusion for all. Thank you. Thanks to our speakers, Karen Mundine and Commissioner Helen Connolly. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.